0: Hey everyone, before we get into this next episode of the Falconry Chronicles podcast, I want to give a quick shout out to a couple of the sponsors of the podcast, the first of which is the Archives of Falconry. And for those of you that have actually never made it to Boise, did you know that you can still see the Archives collection by going to their website at falconry.org? And from there, you can click on the collection tab and explore thousands of collection items using keywords or advanced searches. And in case there's other items that you have that you no longer want but would like to be preserved, you can also donate to the archives by contacting them at info at falconry.org and getting in touch with them. And for more information in general, as always, you can just head to falconry.org and find out more information from there. I'd also like to give Seth Roy a shout out also for being continued sponsor of the podcast. And if you're in the market for a new hunting partner for next upcoming season, breeding season is just around the corner. So if you'd like to have a, a new parent reared North American finisher or Russian goshawk as a hunting partner for next season, hit Seth up. He produces a lot of really nice game hawks. Hit him up at NorthMountainGoshawks.com or on Facebook at North Mountain Goshawks. You can also email him at Ostringer3 at gmail.com and tell them Falconry Chronicles sent you. Now, on to the next episode of the Falconry Chronicles podcast.
1: Finally, I get a little bit closer and closer, and I figure, well, I, I may as well flush, because I don't know what else to do. And I, I have to go back to get my old you know, telemetry out and figure out what happened to my bird. So I the partridge get up and go... And and I'm watching them fly. They're climbing pretty high, which is usually a sign that they're not very intimidated. They're off the ground a bit, 15, 20 feet. And all of a sudden, I hear this slight noise, you you know, the wind.
0: And here we are again for another episode of the Falconry Chronicles podcast. Thanks again so much for continuing to join me on these journeys. And this particular episode takes us back up north to Canada, where Martin Glintz joins me is finally able to connect with Martin after not being able to at the uh, past NAFA meet. He's kind of a busy guy at those kind of functions, being the current NAFA president at all, but got a chance to finally connect with him remotely here and talk about all kinds of cool stuff and you know what it's been like for him to be NAFA president and you know kind of navigating a lot of the stuff involved with getting Falconry legalized where he's at in Canada and different things like that. So, I'm going to go ahead and, as always here, turn things over to this conversation with Martin, and hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Yeah, the the NAFA meet was was pretty cool. I mean, it was a lot of fun. I wish I could have stayed for more than a a couple days or so, but, uh, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, a bunch of people ended up with the crud there, but it's what happens sometimes, you know
1: oh yeah i know it um, it was a great meet it was for me it was incredibly intensely busy <clears throat> you know between i mean with the iaf there there was just all the stuff that goes on at NAFA meet, plus all of that you know plus we we did this um the workshops with uh, for latin american falconry it, it, it was just there was you know mostly at an alpha meet, you know, there you have, you go hawk and do this. You have an evening program a little bit, you know, you hang around. This one was all day, every day, all night. You know, I was just, it was, I was exhausted at the end of it. Well, and
0: it doesn't help the immune system whenever you're burning the candle at both ends and, no, and um, yeah. Whenever you're like running on fumes the whole time and you really don't have much of a choice, unfortunately, but I do want to ask you, I mean, as far as, um, as far as, like, the IAF aspect of things and the involvement with all of that, I, I know that that significantly increases the itinerary and everything. But, I mean, do you feel like that you were able and, like, the whole committee and the board and everybody was able to kind of accomplish what you set out to achieve, you know, with the goals of that meet?
1: I, I think we I, I, think we did that and then some. Awesome. Um, you know, I can't, uh, uh, well, uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, so with the IAF, the, the, you know, the, the regular course of events that would have been, you know, one day is the IAF annual general meeting where all the delegates and they go through their whole thing. So that's sort of in addition. Then the next day we did the board meeting, which we typically do at a NAFA meet. You know, we, we have the board meeting in the morning and we have a bit of orientation. We do, um, you know, and then we have the public version of that, the public uh, meeting in the evening, so so you know right away we have one whole day of extra meetings. Then we, because the IAF and the NAFA boards and 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 you know officers and stuff were together, all in the same spot, which doesn't happen very often, once every six or seven years, whether you know whenever they come here, which is not very often. Um, so we had. We kind of, you know, we, we adjusted the board day, board meeting schedule of, on Tuesday, and we had about an hour and a half, I want to say an hour and a half followed up by lunch. So, you know, all, all together, it was probably two and a half, three hours of time to spend where we, we got together with the IF. So the whole NAFA board and all the officers Got together with um, the um, the advisory board of of the IAF, and we went through you know kind of a roundtable discussion, and then a, a bunch of side discussions on all of the issues that they're facing and what you know that and what they're working on, and then sort of a, what we're working on. Plus, it was a get to know you kind of session. So that was that was uh, again you know another extra thing that we don't normally do, uh, but it was really uh, very very good, very fruitful. Then we had two days well not the entire day but two you know two solid half days uh plus a bit it was almost a day and a half at the end of the with of, of, of a sequence of uh meetings and sessions having to do with latin american falconry so there were a lot of um delegates there that were at the meet and also we had about 25 people online from latin american countries participating in sort of a walkthrough of where various countries are at next steps, how, you know, what, what information is lacking. Um, uh, Brian Millsap participated in that uh, on one of the days and was able to present some information on, you know, raptor ecology and and uh, uh, um, how the, the impact of falconry take on wild raptors and based on the, all the research that he put together in the papers he's written over the years. So that was a, that was, you know, for a lot of the government officials that were on the, um, Zoom meeting, which we had government officials from about five or six countries listening to that. That was, uh, uh, you, you know, we 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 scored on that one, I think, in terms of boosting the credibility of falconry as a f- field activity in those countries where it is mostly unregulated or just starting to be regulated. And we increased the, you know, the credibility of NAFA, the IAF, the falconers who are working on this stuff. It just, you know, it was a really, uh, I think we... Uh, hit it out of the park on that one, I would say. Well,
0: good deal. It's nice to talk to people from other countries and and really get an idea of what they have to go through with their growing pains and the growth process. And and talking to some of these countries that are still kind of in the infancy of, of forming the rules, regulations, and all, all that kind of stuff to get falconry you know legitimized and all that. And I mean, just for transparency's sake, I mean, that's one of the things that I wanted to, to really kind of hit on with you today in this conversation was, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people that are, you know, sometimes skeptical and sometimes just, I think just don't overall understand the process of what goes into all of these different things. And, you know, I think that if, if people really understood how much time, effort, energy, and work went into the collaborative process and getting all these things implemented and stuff, they think they would be, a little bit more prone to, you know, support a lot of these organizations like NAFA and, you know, the, their, even their state clubs and things that, I mean, it's a lot of work. And and I think that I, I know for me, I, I think that if, if, if there was a little bit able to be a little bit more transparency in some ways, you know, to kind of see, you know, how much work goes into it with a lot of people, you know, it would, you know, like I say, we at least raise awareness or at least appreciation, you know, for the job that that it is. I mean, it's a huge job. It's a huge
1: undertaking. Well, well, it is. It is, John. And, I, I, and people, <clears throat> people very often don't realize a, a few important things about the job. It's not. It, it is a process. It's a job that never ends. Right. You, you know, even when you think we have the perfect regulations, we're done. We, they're perfect. There's nothing we even Well, you know, they don't stay the same. The legal environment on which those regulations rest isn't going to stay the same. The politicians that supported them or the bureaucrats, the regulators, whatever, they're not going to stay the same. And so all of a sudden, you know, everything was perfect until it isn't. And then you have an issue to deal with. So there's that, you know, laws change. We we saw that in, uh, you know, uh, 2021 when the USDA said, hey, we're going to create all these regulations for care of, you know, keeping birds in captivity. Well, it turns out, you know, at the end of the day, we managed to, you know, get them to to leave falconry alone because of the way the act was written. But, it you know, one word different. And, you know, we'd have been, we'd had a big set of uh, th- issues to deal with. And, and likewise, you know, um, I mean, there's constantly, you know, the reality is the regulations aren't perfect. And so we constantly have to work on them. So and uh, and at the then you magnify that by there's you know 50 states, 10 provinces. I don't know how many towns and municipalities in every one of those states and provinces. It, it, you know, it is a job that's never done, and and it can't. It is and NAFa. No one organization can do it all. We need to have an effective fa- falconry community that's really hooked together, communicates well, works at their different levels. You know. Uh, and, and people definitely lose sight of that. Um, I think that the there's an older generation of Falconers that sort of grew up in an era where falconry was in many states not legal. And they have a keen appreciation for what it took to get it legal and why it's important to keep it legal. It, and I don't mean this is not disparaging, but you know, if you grew up in a situation where it's always been legal and you've never known any different and every state around you is all legal, then... It, it seems like well, that's just you know, you know, it's it's not threatened, and um, and there's there's nothing to work on. It's you know, it, it's always been that way. It's always going to be that way. And unfortunately, I am seeing you know, in my position, some erosion of that. You know, states where falconry and provinces, actually, one of the my favorite provinces, where there's been some retraction. Some you know, a new set of civil servants or regulators don't ha- you know didn't get all the communication from the falconry community that their predecessors did. And they start thinking, well, why do we have this regulation? Let's change this. Let's add this restriction. Let's, you, you know, so uh, it's very important for um, uh, all all falconers to take that step seriously. Make sure your state club is viable, you know, support NAFA, those are things that, um, you, you have to keep it up because um, when we have a problem, it's too late to build the organization that you need to solve it. You have to have it there. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Just to be fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I I, totally agree. And and I mean, whether or not you're <laughs> pro like entities or government or this, that, or the other, whatever your stance is on, on a lot of different things, I mean, you do have to have a majority voice. I mean, it's just reality, and um, yeah. yeah and and if you don't have that, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot, one way or the other. I mean, that being said, there's like I said, there's just so many people that I think that don't realize just how many different wheels in the in the cogs or, or cog wheel a, cogs the wheels, so to speak, or whatever you want to, whatever say. Yeah, you know?
1: it, it is a complicated process. Yeah. It is a complicated process. It has to take place at multiple levels. You know, there's. There's in the in the US there's federal regulations, then there's state regulations that have to mirror those. So you're operating at multiple levels. You know, the process to get state regulations enacted is can be in some states very complicated, some states a little easier. You know, in Canada there isn't federal regulations, too many. There's not too many federal regulations, but every province has a different set of regulations that have and a different process for modifying them. And so it it gets kind of involved and technical. I mean, you have to understand how the process works and it doesn't matter who's in government at the time. It doesn't matter what political parties and they, g- generally speaking, falconry has been not too partisan. We, we don't, we, we're not heavily affected, you know, uh, it, it, in general, I think wildlife management has stayed out of the partisan fray a little bit. So, you you know, you tend to get, but there, it's a machine to get these things done. You have to, you know, make proposals, they have to go to public comment, they have to, you know, there's rules around uh, the comment period and the consultation process and all the rest of that stuff. And you have to know those things. Uh, uh, Otherwise, you don't, you you, you won't get there. And and people need to understand about falconry. You're in it, of course, and you've been doing it forever. All of the things that we do seem perfectly normal. And perfectly reasonable and who could possibly have anything against them but if you look at falconry in the from the you know from the point of view of any other wildlife related activity and i don't mean i don't care if it's hunting or bird watching or camping or any anything that uses natural resources you, you know falconers for a small group we have hit we we have hit way above our weight class we have gained for ourselves, a set of regulations and rules and, and privileges, frankly, abilities to use natural resources in a way that no other group can. Like, you just name me one other group that can go climb a nest, take an animal out of the wild, and bring it home. Like, nobody can do that. You know, most people, they can't even keep wildlife in captivity, regardless of where it came from. Not only can we keep wildlife in captivity, we can go and take it from the wild, you know, then, you know, things like an extended hunting season and all the rest of these things. If you think about all of that and the regulatory process that went along with it, captive breeding and selling of things that are wild by nature, if not themselves wild animals, that is quite a stack of legislative successes that almost no other group has managed to accomplish. And maybe maybe they haven't even tried. But so that's what it takes to sustain falconry. That's quite, that's a lot of complicated legislation. And it wasn't easily, it's not like we just somebody just knocked on Congress's door and said, hey, we'd like a few regulations, do you mind? And they said, sure, that's not how it went. <laughs> you know, that's Um uh, So there, there's a lot there. and And I think that we need to be thankful for the and protective of the regulations we do have because we've we have a lot of privileges that other wildlife users couldn't touch
0: for sure and you know i mean i think that um like i said i i I, at least i'm confident that if, if more people saw just like i said the extent of that of which the people have to collectively go to to maintain and you know that people the amount that people have to sacrifice from their own hunting seasons to do different things. And, and, you know, I mean, their own falconry, their own personal life for the benefit. You know, I mean, there is some degree of selfishness involved because of course, if, if somebody doesn't do it, you can't do it either. You know what
1: I mean? But, but
0: but at the same time, I mean, do you personally think though, I mean, and, and for those that uh, are listening and, and don't, and really aren't aware of your position and stuff, I mean, you've been NAFA president now for how many years?
1: This is coming up to the end of my second year, second
0: year. So, so, I mean, just, I mean, you personally, just your personal opinion and your tenure so far as, as NAFA president, are there other aspects of how the organization kind of runs, operates or whatever that you think could be better about being a little bit more like transparent or at least, um, You know i mean just kind of uh, making people aware of all of the the different things that they might not know about that go on behind the scenes just so people can be more aware of all that work
1: so we try Mm. and 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 communicate uh sure and it's a bit of a balancing act so uh, there is people would be amazed to know how much is going on sure every board meeting i give a little update of you know okay what happened in the last two months and usually i have to go quickly look at my emails and you know what have we been working on and, and honestly, in any two-month period, it could be, you know, uh, t- two different municipalities. We wrote a letter in support of, you know, changing their bylaws so you can keep raptors. Uh, there was some proposal of regulations in one state or another that we had to deal with. Um, there was, uh, you know, Puerto Rico is trying to get falconry regulated. So there's a bunch of, you know, uh, things going on there. We, you know, we're, we're working on, you know, there's a couple of issues, irons that we have in the fire right now, uh, you know, relative to... Um, paragraph normalization, updating regs in a few areas, uh, the vaccine, you know, HPAI. So there's just, you know, a flurry of activity associated with that. Then there's all the, what I'd call keeping the lights on. You know, there's the hot chalk has to get out. The journal has to get out. There's, you know, money coming in and going out. Membership databases have to be updated, all kinds of things. So I try and communicate and I know others do too. If you over communicate, If if I start blasting out emails every week to the members, sure, more and more of them hit unsubscribe, (laughs) (laughs) and they and they do that. It's like it's like, all right. So you have to you have to be careful, and and uh, and 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 there's a limit to how much you can communicate and actually get people to absorb. So there is an awful lot of I would say. You know, I try and you know go once a month, and often more than once a month in, in in reality to communicate to the members through emails, which is one of the better ways to communicate complicated information, there's only so much you can do on Facebook, uh, for example, and uh, hock chalk, you know, comes out much delayed, it's a very, it's not real time communication by any stretch. So uh, back to my point, there's, there's, you you have to kind of condense your message. And so there's an awful lot of the I'd say the mechanics of what goes on behind Nafa, that it's just, it's really hard to get it. uh, You know, to to get it out there. Um, I think if people, the people who come around to field meets can see some of that in action, uh, come to the board meetings. We do publish the agenda on our website, on the NAFA's website. The agenda and minutes of every board meeting are are there. Uh for people who are interested. Um it's usually, you know, one or two pages each. The agenda is usually a page, and the minutes are maybe two or three pages of what, what was discussed. Um and you know, but that even that only tells half the story. That's that's the board meetings. You know, there there are a lot of volunteers that NAFA, that make NAFa work, uh, a lot. Uh, you know, from the there's you know treasurer and assistant treasurer, membership secretary, assistant membership secretary. You know, general counsel. Uh, there's a, um, a legal team. You know, three lawyers. Um, uh, there's a publications committee, and of course Dan Milner. I mean, if I listed them all out, I'm sure there's 20 people there. There's, sure. Yeah. You know, medical team and all the rest of it. There's there's a lot. It, it takes a lot yeah. to, to keep going, you know, uh, and to be able to respond to the issues that 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 happen, and they and they do happen, you know. <laughs>
0: yeah, for sure. And just to clarify, I mean, I'm not implying that there isn't an effort made or there isn't any any transparency at all or no. anything. But that being said, I mean, it, I mean, it is what it, like I said. There's there's all yeah. kinds of other things that I know that it would be almost impossible to be able to consistently touch on just because of all the different things that are constantly in the works but yeah you know, i'm just curious from your perspective i mean you know like i said i it pretty much answers my question though i mean yeah it's,
1: I, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit like watching a sausage get made right yeah you know? yeah, <laughs> it's yeah not yeah. always pretty
0: <laughs> yeah yeah no i i'm sure but yeah. uh but i mean well I'm, I'm glad that it you know it sounds like you pretty much, you know, were very optimistic and, and very pleased with the uh, the turnout and and the results, you know, from the from the meet and everything. I, I mean, I'm glad to to hear that. Oh, I and, think it was
1: a great yeah. meet. And I, I mean, and they're all great meets. I decided, you know, when I became Canadian director back in 2013, and I'd gone, I went to two or three meets. By the time I got to my third one, I was probably it was before I was vice president or anything like that. I thought to myself, you know, I'm never going to miss another one of these. Like I, I'm just not. I'm uh, this is it's um and I'll say this to you know all of the l- people who are listening who have not been to meet or have only occasionally been to meet it gets more fun the more you go because the more you get to know people from all over the place you know not even just not a, not even not just the United States but United States Canada Australia the UK people come from every meet has a pretty decent international contingent and um there's the the regulars you get you just get to meet such a great bunch of knowledgeable people that you know once you once you you know you've got some familiarity there it, you you just don't you just don't want to miss another one. You don't want to miss it. You know?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I I wish that logistically with the way my life works and especially with a lot of them being on Thanksgiving week and stuff, I I wish that I could make more personally and in some ways, just like I said, for me and the type of career that I'm currently in, uh, yeah, it's it's hard to consistently make those yeah. things, but you know, yeah, yeah, it is. yeah every you know, everybody's yeah. situations are different. But all that being said, I mean, I I want to kind of start talking a little bit about how you know your your falconry's been going recently. I know at the NAFA meet, you mentioned to me that your season was going to be pretty much done. I mean, just because of your schedule, your roles that you serve, you know, personal yeah. stuff. I mean, do you kind of always have an abbreviated season, or well, no,
1: well, I didn't not always have an abbreviated season. Um, the falconry season here. Where I live in Ontario is uh, seven months. Actually, runs from September first till March thirty-first, mm-hmm. so it's a great, nice, long season. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I we used to have a decent number of uh, Hungarian partridge, just you know, it's not too far south of my house, and that you know, when I mean, this is a northern climate, right? So the like everything's everything. Like I d- drove out to get to pick up some quail today. Every pond is frozen, right? And it's been. Frozen for mostly frozen for, um, well, two weeks, probably on and off. Like it, you know, once it gets a skin of ice on it it, it, it doesn't matter if it thaws out. There's no ducks anymore. Right. And so uh, it, our our duck season really starts to get iffy um, after December 1st. It, you know, it, some some years you can stretch it, but, you know, it's, it's iffy. So duck season kind of short. Um, what you know, regardless of what the legal dates are it's for falconry, it's short. Yeah, so you need that upland game. Now we used to have decent numbers of I, I, I could keep it, I could run it right through to you know, into February. And that was a great long season. And I got some fantastic hawking uh, on coveys of partridge. But uh, because of you know, changes in agriculture and the intensification pesticide usage, probably mostly, there are no partridge left here. Uh, I could drive seven hours and and in, in a three days, I might be able to get a flight, you know, out in Eastern Ontario, or two. I've did that a few times in years, you know, in recent years, and have just quit because it's, it, it, you know, it's hard to keep your bird going. So, so there's that. Uh, I, I, you, you, I could have a few weeks of hunting ducks left, but with HPAI, and the fact that, you know, I, I've been hawking the last three or four years, I've been going out to Saskatchewan hawking for two months, two and a half, almost three in one case but this year was more like a little short of two months and then it's all upland birds right so sharp-tailed grouse hungarian partridge i've got a hybrid right now he's doing fantastic he's in second year and uh you know with the with his pitch and the way he flies trying to fly him here in the much more closed country with wires and highways and buildings and there just isn't the space for him to fly the way he would fly, even if there was quarry other than ducks, which there isn't. So I kind of, rather than trying to, you know, stretch it out into something completely unreasonable, kind of ruin my bird or risk it, I I just said, you know, I went to Saskatchewan, brought my bird to Nebraska, hawked chickens for almost two weeks, week and a half. And then, and that was it. Saturday morning after the meet, I had a flight, uh on chickens and that was it called the bird down and said okay that's my season now hopefully um next year i'll be retired and we'll keep it we'll, we'll, we'll stretch it out to christmas maybe we'll go back <laughs> in january who knows, <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> who knows? Enough. Fair because enough. i gotta tell you i'm coming down i had the best season this past season was probably my best season in probably 25 years of hawking. and that's it great. was not until i had a really good female peregrine back in the 90s on and on uh, Hungarian partridge, we just had a blast, but it's probably been that long since I had a season as good as this one. So it, I, it, I've been sort of coming down. I've been going through withdrawals last couple of weeks. <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah,
0: no, I get it. It's um, it's rough. I mean, especially whenever you wear so many hats and do so many different things. I mean, I yeah. I can I can relate, you know, to that to a large extent, just because of all the things I'm involved in and stuff too. And uh, this season, my season is pretty much already done now too. I mean, I was yeah. I was flying a friend's. Harris for her and and um yeah I mean it's just gotten to the point now where it's like okay I mean I've I got all this stuff going on I'm trying to yeah. you know make all these changes with the podcast and so on and so forth trying to make some other changes and it's just like well uh, juice versus squeeze it's always juice yeah, ju- yeah, juice yeah, and squeeze yeah. you know sure. yeah
1: well you know when I was young I was always stealing time for falconry from one thing or another I would steal it from work I'd steal it from my family I'd steal it Where you know, squeeze it in no matter what Mm -hmm. you know i I just i don't i can't do that anymore i don't want to do that in the first place i don't want to make the compromises you know i don't mind well stealing time from work is one thing but stealing time from families (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's uh, i just you know i'd rather enjoy my falconry and and just have you know not have to steal anything and just have it uh um, much more integrated and rational. And I can do that, you know, I, my, my season started in September. I started, you know, got the bird out on the drone for a bit and I was in Saskatchewan by late September. And, you know, we headed off to the Nafameet, uh mid-November. I got back on the 27th or 8th of November and okay. It's a bit of a short season, but we'll, we'll stretch it. We'll get it going more like three and a half months next year and that'll be good.
0: Well, you know, I envy you. Uh, it's going to be a long time, if ever, before I'm I'll Probably <laughs> I'll probably be long dead before I even get a chance to even uh, contemplate retirement. But uh, I don't know. It's uh, it's it's always a juggling act for sure, man. It's it's it is a oh, it constant. Is. It is a constant compromise. You you know, you, you do one thing, something else suffers somewhere, regardless yeah. what no yeah. matter what you It's just all about, you know, choices and stuff. But, you know, that being said, I mean, that would be a good time, I guess, just to talk some about. You know, I mean your your kind of progression through falconry over the years. I mean, how did you get into it? I mean, how, how did you well, get started?
1: Well, the, my um, I had so when I was like nine years old, I saw Disney Wild World. Disney, I don't know, whatever whatever they called Disney shows back then. Sunday night, every Sunday night, family would watch Disney and and uh, together. And there was a show there, and I I don't actually remember the specific title. It, it there were there were two Disney did two things that had a bit of a falconry theme. And one of them was Rusty and the and the Falcon. I think that's the one that it was I saw that. And, uh, you know, nine year old boy. So I my eyes lit up when I saw him fly this falcon. And I, I, I you know, I think I said out loud to my parents, I'm going to do that. You know, that's when I grow up, I'm going to do that. And it sort of, I'd read every falconry book. You know, I'd take them out of the library. Uh, we had a pretty good collection in the local library. I'd read all of them. They were all old British books mostly, but I read them all. I knew all about falconry, but then it sort of faded away. You know, as I was a teenager, it, it sort of was laying there dormant. Um, when I was about uh, 21 or so, I was in university. I was halfway through university and I had an opportunity to work on a peregrine hack that was in the middle of Algonquin Provincial Park, so a, kind of a wilderness hack. Algonquin Provincial Park is a, its about, I want to say, it's about 3,000 square miles of, uh, you know, hilly, forested wilderness in the uh, Canadian Shield. So it's a lot of lakes and cliffs and lakes and things. And uh, they were—this was one of the early releases of Peregrine, peregrines in Ontario, and they did it at this wild—two wilderness, wilderness sites in the middle of the park. And I got a job doing that. And so we just loafed around on the a, on a campsite watching and peregrines and feeding peregrines. And I got to the end of the summer and we'd watched, you know, six or 12 of them flying around. And I thought, wow, I, I, I reawakened my desire for falconry. And um, so uh, that I, I came back, came out of the bush, got back, uh, went to a Raptor Research Foundation meeting, which happened to be at McGill University in Montreal. Uh, that year uh, met some falconers started to make some contacts and got and that's where I started got my start so this was all in Ontario it was all pre-regulation we had no regulations uh, and uh, but there was fairly active falconry community so that sort of got me started and then shortly thereafter operation Falcon kind of came down on us you know like a ton of bricks um, I lived maybe 10 miles from that Canadian epicenter of Operation Falcon, so that you know that was a. I got a front row seat on all of the goings on, of which there were plenty. And uh, then the Ontario government tried to uh, outlaw falconry uh, twice. They introduced legislation into the House of Commons twice to outlaw falconry. So the falconry community um, uh, it wasn't there was no organization at the time, and so we created one, actually. Sitting in, the cafete- in a cafe in Lamar, Colorado. There, it, it turned out in 1984, there was about four or five Ontario falconers that happened to go to the NAFA meet. That was my first NAFAM meet in 1984, Lamar, Colorado. And we were talking about what was happening and how what were we were going to do about it. And we actually formed the basis of the Ontario Hawking Club in a in, around the table in a cafe in Lamar, Colorado. <laughs> Came back, got the club going, met with a bunch of falconers, sort of took on the government managed to get them to stop the first time uh they two years later they tried again we got that kind of settled it wasn't really so much the ontario hawking club as the fact that they got sued by a uh, a a much larger organization and uh, then they kind of that bought us some time and then we spent 15 years of working we we had a full set of regulations that we had developed with them that we were trying to promote based on you know uh, uh, regulations that were being adopted all over the place, uh, NAFA's guidelines, all of this stuff. I was on the phone with Kent Carney, you know, every other week uh, at that time. But it took from then, 1987 was the last that we, they were trying to in, reinterpret the law in a way that would make falconry more or less illegal without when they gave up changing it. And that went to the Supreme Court of Ontario and was thrown out. And 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 that bought the from 1987 till 1997. That bought us ten years of peace. We had no regulations, but we the club formed. It it built itself. We did meet with the Ministry of Natural Resources all the time. We built our credibility slowly but surely, and eventually in 1997 they rewrote the act completely and included falconry regulations. So we'd kind of inched our way up the hill of credibility to get to the point where they were. They went from trying to. Ban falconry outright to saying, okay, you can have captive-bred birds. That was the initial thing, right? And then, so, but from there, you know, we built out and got extended seasons, and then eventually got wild take in 2012, and just in 2020, uh, added we added goshawks and and also simplified the regulations for wild take, so we don't need to get a permit; we can just go take birds. So that was, you know, a 40-year journey to go from we hate you guys. We're going to get <laughs> rid of you. You're done. You're finished. And I li- literally, I literally remember as a, maybe I was 27. You, you wonder why I get involved in FOPMRI. I was 27 years old and I was sitting in the office of the director of the fish and wildlife branch. And we had been working with them, you know, time after time, pr- presenting uh, proposals for regulations that would have, you know, regulated falconry properly we had some support with the ontario federation of anglers and hunters they came out with us and they were always there that's a big organization hundred thousand members and they listened politely and they interacted we went back and forth and then it got to where we thought we were finally getting somewhere and we sat in the director's office and he looked at me and i was a kid i'm a kid i'm 27 it feels like a kid now <laughs> and he said martin i know you've done a lot of work here and you passionately believe all this but the Ontario government has decided to go in a different direction. You will have 60 to 90 days to get rid of your birds once we adopt this new piece of legislation. And I mean, my heart, I mean, since I was nine years old, all I wanted to do was fly birds and just sit there and have the, the man who can tell, you know, who does this, tell you it's over. You're, you're done. We came out of there and I mean, my I, my, I was crushed, you know, I, but I bet but we, you know, it was like bone crushing. It's like he couldn't have done anything worse to what I aspired for the rest of my life. So, you know, we, but we, we put together a plan. I mean, we were up at night writing letters to every single member of parliament from every party there was, you know, we got meetings with as many, we motivated the members. We, and we, and we stopped them. You know, we, we created enough doubt on the part of other people that they that they didn't do that. So, you know, that's, that's why I think keeping these, you know, making sure you don't get into trouble is a good idea. That's why, you know, all the things we talked about earlier about making sure you're, you're on the right side of the regulations, because when it's bad, it can be really bad. Right? Sure. So anyway, to, the bottom line is going from that in 1987, six ish to 2021, having basically all a wild take of all the birds we wanted extended seasons, uh, you know, and probably ha- I would say having maybe one amongst the best relationships with our government, uh, um, uh, that, uh, that, that falconry clubs can, can have, I mean, you know, it's a really strong relationship. That's a, that's a big turnaround and, uh, took 40 years to get there of continuous effort, but, yeah. but the result is falconry is safe. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. No, I mean, it's a, uh, it's a lot of work. I mean, and it takes a lot of time and, and it's, it's amazing how quickly it can be taken away, but it yep. takes forever to like build it up and stuff. I mean, yep. I mean, that's what, and, yeah.
1: You know, so anyway, that's so, I mean, part that, that obviously on the, on the not on the non-Falconry side, on the political side, that, that whole experience is, is kind of what, you know, if you want to know who I am, as a, you know, you know why did I get an NAFRA? Or how would I get into NAFRA? Or how do I look at things when I'm facing a problem as NAFRA president? Those were my formative years. My formative years were starting there, saying, falconry is over, dude. You're finished, to turning it around. And, and, and I mean, I feel like I've described myself as a, a falconry cold warrior. Like, I, you know, it's like, even when you're not fighting, you're fighting. Right? <laughs> there's a, Because even when they're not shooting at you, they want to shoot at you. Mm-hmm. They're loading their guns. They're aiming. They're fi- because <laughs> for the first 20 years, that's all it was. The, the government, they couldn't take us out. They lost that battle a few times. But they, you know, even when they weren't shooting at us, they were kind of planning to shoot at us. Mm-hmm. So it took a long time to get that to turn around. It took a long time of just working continuously, even when you thought it was safe, to just keep working to build that trust, build that relationship, turn them around. It took 40 years to to go from open animosity between us and the government to, you know, OK, we can probably make this work, maybe to, you know, a very supportive relationship. And It took a long time. It's like a, it's like an asset that we built up in, you know, in, and I know there are many other uh, places that have, have had gone through a similar process. And you need to keep going because you don't want to you don't want to, you know, you don't want to let it slip away that that level of uh, uh uh trust and interaction because it's really hard to build
0: yeah for sure and as far as your personal falconry during all that time i mean were you have you been primarily more of a long wing guy
1: during that whole time um like i said the first 10 years we didn't actually have much in the way of regulations, so we were just following the regular hunting regulations uh, but uh, yeah i mostly flew uh uh long wings um uh, uh started out i i had a Uh, kestrel for a little while. I had Merlin. I had a prairie falcon, which I lost pretty fast. A Good, very good friend of mine uh, got into breeding falcons uh, very early on. And so I was very fortunate that way. And, and uh, I I got some Tiersel peregrines in the early days. So kind of in the late 80s, early 90s, up to about 96 or something like that. I flew a Tiersel peregrine. Um, And By that time, I had discovered the Huns. And so I was chasing Huns a lot. Uh, That Tiriel Peregrine absolutely did not. He would not touch or look at a duck. Mm. Like I mean, so uh, uh, that's all I flew him on, uh, uh, Hans. And there were and I, I never got skunked. I always found some when I went out. I so I had some great falconry. Uh, I got a, a female Peregrine. Actually, it was a, a hacked bird from Lynn Oliphant and Patty Thompson out in Saskatchewan. They they did a tame hack, and I got a gorgeous female Peregrine from them back in ninety six. I think was the first year I flew that bird. And it was a real high-spirited uh, bird. It was probably the best falcon I, I've had. Um, it was a, you know, t- it 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 gave me good run. I had quite a few chases in this first year. I had really had to try to get the thing to sort of understand how to fly it because it was just had a much bigger wing on it than anything I'd flown before then. And uh, but it 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 became a really good bird. And I and I started you know c- catching ducks with it too. But it was uh, great on uh, fantastic. It's just a lot of really good hunt flights uh, in the winter. You know, you know running through the, the late fall and uh, brought it out to Saskatchewan a bunch of times. Caught a few grouse with it, uh, uh, sharp tails, and uh, she actually uh, hit a tree. She was stooping on some green wing teal and hit a branch and uh, died in my arms just before I uh, a month before I was going to uh, Kansas to try to hawk Prairie chickens. Um, that was a, unfortunate. It was my my first time trying to hawk prairie chickens. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah. So then I had a succession of other uh, a male and female peregrines. Um, pretty, yeah, on and off. There, there, there might have been a small gap in there uh, in the early, you know, in the you know, 2006 or seven or something like that. But it was mostly – and peregrines. I was really – I like peregrines. I, I still love peregrines. Um, uh, I like looking at them. I don't know. Um, I, I really, I, I like, you know, <clears throat> my my aspiration is to, you know, get another female peregrine like the one I had in the 90s because female peregrines, you know, they're, they're a good-sized bird. And uh, when they want to hit something, they they can deliver quite a quite an impact. Um, th- this hybrid that I'm now flying is actually my first hybrid. So I had resisted getting a jerk peregrine hybrid for a long time. And uh, I was flying a female peregrine, and I thought, well, I, I'm going to, know, I'm going to moving towards retirement. I've got more time to fly. I should get a second bird. I'll I'll get this chure peregrine hybrid, and uh, so I flew it last year. Was the first year. This year was its second year, and uh, and of course, you know, it's everything that you know. Hybrids have a reputation for being, of course, it's it's a great bird. Um, It it uh, last year I had a pretty what I'd call pretty mediocre female peregrine, and this bird, you know, outstripped it uh, pretty quickly. and uh and this second year in his second season it is like i said i think i've had my best season since since the 90s uh with this bird um yeah yeah my uh, my license plate is peregrines (laughs) p-r-e-g-r-n-s and uh, last year my buddies i was out in saskatchewan they they, they they're constantly teasing me about you know peregrines versus jurors and they um they got an old license plate and they fitted a, a a little an overlay they made up an overlay out of a piece of paper and some magic mark you know some markers and stuff and changed my license plate to hybrids <laughs> that on my license plate <laughs> took a little while for me to notice but <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah it's always slick whenever your buddies put that that uh kind of obscure <laughs> license plate frame or something around there and, joke and but you don't realize what you've been representing for about months you know like yeah. months on end yeah. but yeah. oh that's awesome it sounds like you know you've you've for the most part have had pretty decent falconry around your area you know i mean unfortunately i mean it's, yep. it's a it's a common theme we we can't ever talk about it we can't ever talk about it enough you know how much we're all losing land and, oh, and yeah. quarry and everything else but well uh, it's
1: got to the point where even the ducks like i my my falconry had converted like the last couple of peregrines they were it was all duck hawking i was that's pretty much all there was so it was duck hockey but even that got to the point where i was coming back you know from out west and trying to fly My burden and driving two hours to find you know a duck setup that i could actually take because you know houses were going up or factories or the ponds were drained or it was just it was just getting harder and harder and i was driving longer and longer for worse and worse setups you know setups that you you know i i was (laughs) driving by some of the places that i used to fly now you know when you get used to hawking out west in much bigger country and you you know shaking my head could not believe that I used to actually fly a bird here? You know, it's pretty tough. And that's just partly population growth and, and all the rest, of, all the rest of it. You know? For
0: sure. Well, I mean, out of all the different experiences and stuff that you've had throughout the years, I mean, this is always a tough question for people to really kind of recollect, think on and, and kind of pick. But I mean, what are your, uh, like one or two, like most memorable hunting experiences that you've had or stories, uh, flights, anything like that, that you can think of?
1: Well, I, I can tell you one uh i'll tell you one and it was at a time when we were um we were sort of in the thick of fi- uh, you know the the, the the battling for falconry uh, and we had a reasonable amount of opposition here in ontario from you know from the a- anti-hunting types that really just didn't want us to have birds of prey and didn't want to make it legal to hunt with them and and uh leave alone leave alone take them from the wild that that, that would have sent them into a tailspin um So we were, you know, and the the government was reluctant to move on that. So that was our context, our environment. But there was good huns around. And I went out one day. It was very cold, you know, snow on the ground, clear blue sky, crisp, I, you know, and it's it's probably around minus 15 Celsius. So, you know, I I guess zero-ish Fahrenheit, you know uh kind of a cold winter day and uh i spotted some hun- big cold one area where we have really big cornfield so way out in this cornfield i could see a couple of dots a little covey of partridge up there so i think okay well this will be good typical of the corn rows you know you, you i would i i i put my um plastic cup on the road so when i when i went on and i could walk back to the cup and go straight up the corn row to get to where the <laughs> to get to where the huns were and i had my dog with me and um So I started, I put the bird up and it was like, you know, that very light breeze and light air. And I started walking out and walking out and, and I kind of couldn't see my bird. I I kept looking up and I I can't, I could faint. I think I hear a bell. I think I hear a bell, but you know, and and the dog meanwhile is, is running. And so that while I'm doing that, I kind of lose my place. So now I'm out in the middle of this cornfield. (laughs) I'm way out there and I can't see my falcon. And now I don't really hear the bell anymore either. And I'm thinking... Uh-oh. Am I in trouble? What happened here? Meanwhile, I look over and the dog's on point. I'm waiting and I'm thinking, so, you know, if I finally I get a little bit closer and closer and I figure, well, I, I may as well flush because I don't know what else to do. and I, I have to go back to get my old, you know, telemetry out and figure out what happened to my bird. So I, the partridge get up and go and, and I'm watching them fly. They're climbing pretty high, which is usually a sign that they're not very intimidated. They're off the ground a bit to 15 20 feet and all of a sudden i hear this slight noise you know when you know the wind mm-hmm. i look up and i can just see her just tear dropping just still way up there come down on on the, and by the time the huns realized they were in trouble they were probably 30 feet up and she came underneath down and just sucked one in. it was a stoop and scoop you know sucked one up and just carried it way up and she, she landed way you know way far away from me she was probably 250 yards out in the field where she came down with this thing. That's how long it had taken her to get in there. So it was just a gorgeous, classic flight on a beautiful day. And I'm sort of booking my way over there, kind of getting to where, you know, across the rows. And I I get close to her, and she's just standing on the, and I wish I had a camera, because she was just standing as pretty as you could be, all folded up nice, with the hun on her feet, looking at me, watching me walk up. And I get there, and she walks off the hun, jumps up on my fist, I pick up the dead partridge, you know, open it up, break it open. Where I'm walking out of the field, and there's steam rising off this partridge. And I just had probably at that point the best flight of my life at that point. And the thought that ran through my head is, you know, there's people who don't like this. <laughs> they want to stop this. There's people I have to deal with. I'm going to go Monday and go deal with people who want this to end. Right? Yeah. And it was, for me, it was just a high, you know, just in context. I mean, it was a beautiful flight, but it also had this sort of, context around it that just it was just that made it uh, such a contrast it was just such a contrast of how at its best how beautiful falconry can be and and honestly i think i wanted to tell all those people that have been giving me such a hard time that if you knew anything about it you would love it as much as i did
0: yeah yeah and i think yeah i all that i really ask for people that are really skeptical or don't understand it is and I'm always kind of um, personally. I always I kind of feel like I'm kind of put your money where your mouth is. Like if you really hate this so much, then yeah. then you at least have to be willing to experience it yourself. Come see it, and if you still feel the same way about it afterwards, like okay, at least you've actually yeah. taken the steps to at least try to reach some common ground. It, what I don't understand is all the people that just want to hate on something that they don't understand but they don't have oh, any yeah. inkling to want to try oh, and understand yeah, either yeah. you know it's like they don't
1: want to let the facts interfere with their story yeah right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know but anyway that was that's that's one i've, I've been fortunate i've had a, a few other flights like that i had a similar flight where again you know I don't. well funny enough with the this hybrid i had a, a, a flight where i i couldn't find the bird in uh, on uh, uh, just in nebraska on prairie chickens in, in, in um similar did the telemetry, kind of hit, glitched on me. And all of a sudden, I I couldn't see anything on the GPS. I couldn't, and my bird had gone off to chase something, and I didn't know where it was. It was the same idea. And eventually, I got the, tele- the telemetry working, and it, and it said the bird was right above me. And all of a sudden, I looked up, and I can see this tiny little speck that I wouldn't have seen if I didn't know to stare there, of course. And uh, I was 3 quarters of the way back to my truck to get the telemetry to figure out what had happened to my falcon. And I had to run up and down all these hills, get, to my truck. I was exhausted, you know, gasping, almost ready to throw. I had to go run all the way back to the field and flush. What turned out, I flushed a prairie chicken and and we ended up catching it. So uh, that was, that was kind of nice. Um, but yeah, I hadn't seen my bird most of that flight. <laughs> you know, <I> like,
0: <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, no, it's it's funny how that stuff works out. I mean, it, and sometimes there's just so many days that you have to where it's like you're walking back to the truck, you're giving up and you're just like, you know, doing the walk of shame. And then sometimes yeah. like the, the the great thing happens on the way back to the truck. And, oh, yeah. You know, oh, right? for it's, sure. it's, it's funny how that works.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, well, you know, it's one of the enduring sort of uh, attractions of falconry is that you just – it's it's never the same, you know. It, it's there's always things happen. I mean, sometimes they're, they're bad things, and you know, sometimes you're trying to climb up on a factory roof or try to figure out how to get up on this factory roof to get my bird back. You know, that has chased a pigeon off into who knows where, and <laughs> you try to remind yourself that you know your initial objective was to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, there's also the other things that just you know the really cool things that happen.
0: Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that sometimes we have to constantly remind ourselves that, that it's supposed to be fun and we actually willingly do this, you know. And it's like, you know, there's always those days that we all have yeah. that it's, yeah, it's a uh, so seemingly an exercise in futility. But yeah. for some reason, we keep going back for more. Yeah, there's, a, weird, there's, huh? a,
1: there's a certain, I don't know, I guess a certain breed of people that because it does take you know for in my case it took quite a long time from the time that i got into falconry and i started to catch game on on any kind of a regular basis i i mean anything other than pure accident uh, that was that was it you know at the time we didn't have regulations we didn't have an apprenticeship program we you know we we weren't you know get, getting passage birds and and it was hard it was just I, it, you know it was like i it made a lot of mistakes and and uh, things that are obvious now that weren't so obvious when you were just trying to learn it from books and a few phone calls with people um so that was that took a, it took a long time to get to that stage i mean i think that you know i see young people getting into falconry now that we have access to passage red tails and apprenticeship program and all the rest of it and they're you know they're able to get that success much much quicker and of course, that that's that keeps them going, right? I mean, once you get a little bit of success, you're like, Hey, this can work, this is great. Um, and 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 it, it's an impetus for you to keep going. But you know, for those, for those of us who have had to just fail, fail, fail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, why are you doing this? <laughs> yeah, it's that one, time, <laughs> that
0: one time. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, you can always tell the people that are really serious and the people that are really ate up with it, the ones that yeah. that keep getting, uh, you know, kicked in the in the naughty bits yet continue to keep on going you know over and over again but uh but yeah no i mean so i mean before we wrap up or and i I, you know i still want to get like a final piece of advice from you and stuff but before we wrap up i mean just out of curiosity from your standpoint too and just you know kind of specifically talking about you know your province and everything i mean i I can tell that you're pretty happy with the way things have gone and and transition and you know all the work that's been done over the years to get what you all have I mean, what do you think? Still, would be would be cool to be able to to see happen, and uh, from your point of view,
1: in my own province, or yeah, just in, your, in general, in your own
0: province or in general, whichever. I mean, like, or you know, for for Canada or in particular, or you know, specific to your own province, either one or both.
1: Well, uh, it would be great. So, there are no Canadian provinces that allow non-resident take. That'd be great if if there was if there if there was more of that. Um, uh, we we are not we don't have a peregrine take here in Ontario. They do in Saskatchewan. Um, I it would be they don't in Alberta, but they probably pretty close. If, if you know uh, if they if they put some effort into it, they could probably get it in Alberta. It's probably further away in a, here in Ontario. That'd be a I, I I think that'd be a nice to have the kind of thing. The season. Isn't it's not quite as attractive to get passage peregrines this far north as to say compared to if you live in Texas or Oklahoma, where you're getting a passage bird and you have your whole season in front of you, as opposed to by the time you get this thing out there, there's three weeks of season left, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, it, you know, so that's that's partly why you know people aren't falling all over themselves to, to get passage peregrines because the utility is not the same. But that would be that would be nice. Uh, in, in other respects, um, I think. I, I think that we have uh, our paperwork structure is 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 pretty optimal here in Ontario. We don't have it. it it's, it's less onerous than most other places. Um, I, I would like to see that sort of uh, spread. Um, I would like to see it so that your falconry license is good. No matter you don't need to get an import or export permit in another province. You can just use it no matter where. Uh, um, uh, that's more common in U.S. states where your falconry license is sort of good everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um on uh you know uh, in the u.s i think that the the next big positive step is peregrine normalization and uh, we're we're working hard on that and uh and that will send a big signal you know it's it's obviously great for u.s falconers but it also it sends a big a big signal to uh to canadian regulators as well and canadian falconers it gives them a big opportunity because Hey, look, look what they're doing just south of the border. I mean, it's not, why do we have all these restrictions, right? Because it's the same biology, same bird. It's flying back across the border. So it, 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 provides a very, uh, uh, strong argument for loosening up paraffin take in Canada too. So. Yeah, so get, those are those are good things.
0: Yeah, the the, the domino effect is always nice. You know, yeah. it's kind of yeah. yeah.
1: If, if you if you get involved in these in making these regulations, every one of those states or provinces, when they make a regulation, they do what's called a jurisdictional scan. What are all the surrounding jurisdictions doing? What do they do on this? Like, if, I don't care if you want to open a bear season or you know whatever. They're going to look and say, "Well, what are the what, what, how is bear hunting managed in all of our surrounding jurisdictions?" Right that's what they do. And so in the case of falconry, they they do that and, and, you know, Ontario borders five states. So it makes a bit it makes a difference. right? Sure, <laughs> they, they look around, right. And um, so, so those are those are good things. That's what we got to look for, uh, look forward to, I think, um, I, you know, in terms of challenges, I think that the what we touched on earlier is the the challenge that I, you know, if I could send a message, and we have been sort of going region by region and talking to all the different state club and provincial club presidents and 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 leadership and uh just to get you know to exchange information back and forth and but one of the things that i would say to all falconers is you know that 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 the challenge in the coming years is going to be to look out for that erosion of the privileges that we've built up because of changes in the regulatory environment um, changes to to hunting in general and falconry in particular and some of the maybe some of the uh, positive relationships that we've built up over years are going to those people are retiring there's new people coming in many of the new people that come into these wildlife regulatory agencies don't have a hunting background right they used to all be hunters and fishermen now they're less and less of them have any experience with hunting or what I'll call traditional wildlife management. And so you, you end up having arguments that you never had before. And so that's, that's a challenge we're going to face over the next 20 years, It's just going to take, you know, a concerted effort on the next generation of falconers to, you know, do what they're what we did a generation ago, right, and, and, and pick up that ball. Um, and then there's just the lack of the, the, the continuing erosion or decrease or decline in in game species and, and open areas to hunt. Um, that's of course a much bigger problem and we're not alone in that. Um, NAF has been making partnerships with m- many other conservation related organizations it, so that we can all kind of work together uh, and get you know, laws that are favorable. You know, RAWA's is one, the farm bill, there's all kinds of you know things that need to happen to Um, If we're going to be able to hunt 50 years from now, I won't be hunting 50 years from now. But you know, (laughs) anybody else is going to hunt 50 years from now, then they're going to need need that stuff.
0: I mean, to be fair, I'm probably not going to be either. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah, but uh, well, I mean, that's like I said, it's a lot of good information, and and I appreciate you, you know, like I said, being willing to share and you know just kind of talk about what some of your personal experiences were like and and everything today. And um, you know, I mean, that's that's some good. I, I think people need to, to continue to hear, you know, what some of these challenges are going to continue to be. And, and, um, you know, I mean, I don't, I've, I've said this before. I mean, I don't know if people so much, I don't know if like, take it, take things for granted is a good way to put it, but there's a lot of um, lack of, I don't know, like kind of empathy in, in a lot of ways, like with the way things are around other parts of the world, because we don't live it. You know I mean? Like, that's why yeah. it's been so eye opening for me to see how things work in these other countries, and like South Africa, and and yeah. you know like Mexico and and everything, and and um, you know people need to understand that you know it can it can go away very fast. Yeah. Oh yeah,
1: and and you know there are well, and you, you you know you talk to the Europeans, and they they lost what we have, mm-hmm. and and they they lost what we have, and. And uh, they feel it acutely. And, uh, you know, we, we have it pretty good. I mean, we have, we have our issues. And, you know, I, I think uh, one, I was talking to one person, I, I think it might have been a US Fish and Wildlife Service official that said, you know, there are a lot of falconers that think we're one lawsuit away from Nirvana.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's, a, that's, of course, a big exaggeration uh, on a couple of levels. But it also kind of speaks to the fact that a, a lot of people don't realize really how good we have it. It's not to diminish the issues we have and not to diminish the fact that we need to work hard to make sure we don't lose what we have, but it it could be a lot worse. And all you have to do is look at almost anywhere else in the world and you will see it worse. You know, one of the things why I, I really wanted to do something for Latin American falconry is it's like North American falconry was 60 years ago. And they have a lot, they have such, they have amazing raptors, unique quarry they still have lots of open country. But they don't have the legal environment that we have. And in, in some of those countries, it's, it's, it's a big, it's a heavy lift, it's a big stretch to get to where they would need to there are some countries in South America where hunting is illegal, period. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, you know, they got it. But there's other countries where it's, it's a doable thing. And, and of course, just like, you know, it, it, it's like the world you got to think of it as your neighborhood. Like If falconry is legal and recognized everywhere in the world, well, then the chances of, you know, them trying to wipe out falconry here is, oh well, why would that happen? Why, why would this be the first place on earth that they would wipe out falconry? But if falconry is only legal here and it's illegal everywhere else in the world, well, y- you can see them coming. Yeah. You know? So why do we want to help Latin American falconry? Well, partly because we can and we should and we should help each other and partly because if we help them we're helping ourselves
0: yeah of course yeah Yeah. no i mean that's uh like i said i think that's a a pretty good you know sentiment to to kind of come close to ending on here and and you you know already gave some good advice and stuff but i mean is there any last final you know thought that you have or any last thing that you want to mention before we we call this good or anything or
1: uh i guess i uh, i could put in a a plug i'm going to pick up on what you said before if i if i if if, you know if you think about all the things that it takes to make your falconry viable of course you need to get out in the morning you need to get up in the morning you need to train your bird you do all that stuff you need to buy the right equipment all that stuff but but what you don't see is what it took to get you that falconry license to get you the extended season and and you know the only way to get that and keep that is is not everybody is going to be active on the legislative front. Not everybody is going to be the editor of the magazine, not everybody, but but you can support all those activities. Right. I mean, join your state club, join NAFTA. Those are little things. There, there's It's like less than a tank of gas. You, you know, uh, it's not that much. And, uh, you, you know, it, get involved if you can. It takes a lot of people to make an organization work at the local level and, and national and otherwise. But, that, so my, my closing thought is don't lose sight of the fact that 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 your falconry rests on the shoulders of a lot of people that went before you uh, and you need to make sure that they that those that that those organizations are supported or you or you want to have it.
0: Perfect. Well, I mean, hopefully sometime I can make it up that way. I've been, I've actually never been to Canada still. Um, yeah. Hey, I, really? Yeah. It'd be really cool to be able to make one of those meets up there. Some you continent. should,
1: you should, you will, you will see some great falconry here, they're still out, out in, in Saskatchewan, Alberta, and parts of Manitoba, the West generally Ex- excellent access to, to land. And just because of the way the land use uh, is there's, you know, a good, Good game population certainly it's a duck factory of north america so if you're you know there's lots of ducks and then good upland numbers so you you, you can see a lot of falconry yeah
0: yeah you know? well we'll try and make it happen sometime but in the meantime uh, hopefully the next time we see each other we won't come out with any kind of uh crud or disease or yeah uh, that's right. esplents, yeah. Actually, you
1: know? <laughs> to be honest with you i you know i think this is like the second or third it might actually be the third and a half a in a row that I'm coming back with something.
0: <laughs> it's, it's hard not to anymore. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you
1: know, yeah, yeah. I mean,
0: that, that big of a gathering where you're around so many people at once. I mean, yep. you're going to get sick. I mean, yep. I, 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 I try to pop vitamin D and Zycam before I, I, you know, yeah. kind of preliminary medication type of deal uh, before I do those things anymore. But um, sometimes it's still just not enough, unfortunately.
1: no. Nope. Nope. Uh, well, it was worth it. I I would do it again, you know. Um, Eventually, you would think my immune system would be able to handle it. I think it's the third time I've had COVID.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean.
1: Well, I tested. So, this is the second time I tested. So, it's for sure the second time I
0: had it. Yeah. Yeah. I for sure had it to probably Three, but I mean, av- after the second time, I was just like, "Well, you know."
1: Yeah. Well, I was the only reason I I wasn't even going to test, yeah. but then uh, I'd heard I heard that somebody somebody else from the NAF I was talking to somebody else who went there and said, "Oh yeah, half my family tested positive for COVID," and I thought, "Oh," and I happened to have a COVID test leftovers. Said, "Well, okay, fine, try it."
0: sure enough <laughs> yeah yeah well you know that's how the cookie crumbles but uh, yeah yeah great but it's yeah. been it's been great talking to you I, i'm, I'm yeah. glad that we finally got a chance to to make this happen yeah and, and i
1: apologize for making it take so long but uh, i still haven't i know you you talked to mark williams and and uh, lynn oliphant i haven't had a chance to just been so busy with the meat and just mm-hmm. coming down after the meat to just I got to listen to those yeah. podcasts. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I've got I've still got like 30 episodes on the shelf that still need to be published, believe it or not. Oh, exactly. And and wow. and I'm trying to um, you know, I don't know if you heard the recent announcement or not, man. By the time that this comes out, I'm sure everything will be well underway with it, but you know, I we're basically porting things over, kind of branching out on my own now since things, yeah. you know, and, and all that kind of stuff and um so, you know, things are going to kind of keep going hopefully in a in a good uh, yeah, you know direction, and um, let's go ahead and end it then, and we'll call this good. Like I said, thanks again, and then and appreciate you.
1: Yeah, well, I appreciate you uh, having me. It was it was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, awesome, Martin. I
1: appreciate what you're doing.
0: Well, well, um, I appreciate you all and and all the work that continues to go on too. So, uh, until next time. All right.
1: All right.